This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, uh, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today, again, I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking to my dear friend, uh, Professor Christina Fotopoulou from the Imperial College of London. Uh, and the topic of this discussion is going to be a lead article in our journal uh, titled The European Society of Gynecological Oncology Guidelines for the Perioperative Management of Patients with ovarian cancer. So, Christina, welcome, and it's uh, great to have you on a podcast again. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, dear Pedro. It's uh, always an honor and a pleasure to be with you, with our readers, uh, with international community, um, and thank you, above all, for making our article as a lead article and giving me the opportunity for this podcast today. It's of a course. great pleasure. Of course. No, and and uh, as we were speaking before the podcast, I... I I admire the time, effort, and dedication that you put to the development of, uh, of these guidelines. So uh, I'm just going to start off by asking you, um, you know, certainly why uh, putting together a guideline specifically on um, perioperative management of patients with ovarian cancer? So that's actually a very good question. And, um, you know, we all travel a lot. We all are friends with the whole world now, especially with the pandemic. We are all uh, talking to each other. And actually, when you really so we all are so much concentrating about the indications for the disease, about when to operate, how to operate, and, and uh, what treatment to give afterwards. And then when you actually talk to people and your friends, I talk to you, I talk to Andreas, to Anna, and we actually talk about the technicalities of the surgery. When do you give antibiotics? How long? What do you do after splenectomy? You have a patient with a PE. When do you operate? And um, how do you do body prep? Everybody does a bit of something different. Everybody. It, it was remarkable to see how strong and homogeneity you have in this regard. So even though we are we are with UNESCO trying to homogenize and standardize practice of care in terms of the um, actual surgical and systemic management of kind of cancers, the actual technicalities, they are so vague still. So I thought of putting together when I took over the uh, chair of the ESCO guidelines committee to actually make something that will be useful for the real life where, you know, all of us were sitting there in theater in the outpatient clinic room where we can have like a manual where we can look into to ask and to answer all these um, questions that we have in our daily practice, how to actually manage those patients during surgery. So that was our vision. Yeah, precisely. I mean, to your point, as I was reading these guidelines, and I really do encourage all of our listeners to to read them, uh, you're absolutely right. You know, as I was looking through them, I was like, well, I, I practically I don't do it exactly like that, but uh, very, very good points that you, you bring up. So um, before we get into the details of the guidelines, tell us a little bit about the methods of uh, like how you put, um, put it all together, um, you know, ultimately developing these guidelines. Exactly. So first of all, before I start that, I would like to point out to our readers that the actual the actual whole work and the, all the evidence is is um, is hidden in the supplement of the of the paper. So because it was a long, it was a very long work. It was a, a hundred page document. It was too long to just submit it as a main manuscript. So the actual main manuscript are just the um, the crude recommendations, but the evidence behind that. The whole uh, specification and clarification why we have recommended what is actually in the supplement. So our main, our our actual work is in the supplement. So I would encourage everybody who has time or who has a specific question to go and wants to go deeper into a chapter to read the supplement part 
and not just the main manuscript, which just has like keywords of the recommendations. So how did we um, start the work? So we started within the ESCO Council. I threw the idea out into the Council and everybody was very enthusiastic. And as soon as we got approval, we chose, um, I made like a, within the guidelines committee, we, we, we developed a structure of which topics we would like to address. And I hope we have addressed all the main topics that are relevant for this disease and for the surgery. And then we have um, appointed and we have invited key opinion leaders from all over the world, from all over Europe mainly, because it was easier um, to, to meet uh, if we were from Europe, uh, in order to build working groups. And then we had working groups that were responsible for every chapter. We had at the end 18 chapters. Um, and there were a working group of three, four people for every working for every chapter, uh, who then um, reviewed the entire evidence and literature that was um, identified by Francois Plasham, who is our independent epidemiologist of ESCO, mm -hmm. so that we can ensure that we have an unbiased view of things and that we don't miss out evidence just because of bias or because of opinions. And um, after reviewing of the literature, we had various meetings uh, that in the beginning we hoped would be or we thought it would they would be all physical but of course none of it was physical they were all virtually because this whole work was done during the entire pandemic and during the peak of the pandemic mm -hmm. and this um and then the, this evidence was put down on the table we were reviewing it we were discussing why who i mean as you say everybody is doing everything a bit different so we're discussing why would we recommend this and not something else? Um, and that's how we, at the end, uh, developed the guidelines. Francois, as an epidemiologist, uh, graded the evidence at the end, again, in an unbiased way, so that our readers know how um, strong the recommendation of each, uh, the evidence of each recommendation is. Perfect, yeah. And I'm glad that you um, highlighted that the, the full details of the body of the manuscript are, are to be found in the, in the supplementary material. So I wanted to just discuss and start by, um, you bring up these sort of general rules that you propose in the guidelines as it pertains to patient counseling and patient selection for ovarian cytoreductive surgery. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, so it's not more, it's not so about selection. So we don't go at all into any indication or selection of patients. What it was very important for us is that as, I mean, as part of the surgery, it is important of the technicality of surgery is also the consenting process. Mm -hmm. And the consenting process means that when you actually have decided that you want to operate somebody or that this patient would be eligible for surgery, that you very open and transparent discuss with this patient about all the risks and benefits, the complications. So all the complications that we discuss during the main body of the evidence, it was very important to us that we make clear that the patient needs to know about these complications, needs to know about the risk and benefit ratio of those. And we also had patient representatives who reviewed the document, and it was very important to them that this is clear from the beginning. And this is why we start actually the whole um, work by saying, listen, this is a this is a guidance of how to treat complications, of how to do the whole perioperative management. By but before you go into that, you need to make to clarify to the patients that these are the risks, these are the benefits, these are the potential pitfalls uh, in a very transparent way so that the patient can make an informed decision whether she wants to go into that journey. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And um, you you address a, a lot of points that I really thought were very important. And as you mentioned, a lot of times we don't really uh, focus on, on, on these with regards to our sort of like our scientific discussions. But you did spend some time discussing the importance of surgical safety checklists, uh, patient positioning, yeah, yeah, and the yeah. use of retractors. Yeah. So um, exactly. tell us a little bit more about uh, yeah. these items. Yeah, so you actually laugh. So we had a chapter about retractors and about positioning, but none about safety checklists. Mm -hmm. So just before the end of the whole work, I think it was Luis Chiva who said, hey, guys, you haven't written anything about WHO safety checklists. Mm -hmm. And everybody turned around and said, oh, yes, you're right. So, of course, that's one of the crucial parts and keystones of, of surgery. Yeah, and not just from a medical legal point of view, but from a practical point of view, uh, it is um, it, it is very important to show that there is standardization. Not all countries have this uh, checklist, uh, even though increasingly more and um, more more and more countries implement it. But it was very important to us to emphasize the importance of this objectivity of um, of care. In terms of positioning, these are very long surgeries. All of us, and we had anecdotal uh, incidents that all of us shared with each other, where people had long-term nerve injuries from retractors, um, uh, thromboembolic events in the legs with leg problems because of long stirrups and Lloyd-Davis positions. So these are all things that we all see in our daily practice, but never talk about those. Never. We never talk about those things. So it was very important to, to us and to me that um, we actually put them on paper and talk about them and bring them into light and say, listen, these are the problems and we need to face them and how can we prevent them? Yeah, absolutely. And and um, one of the things you, you also focus on and a lot of times for, not so much for the surgeon, obviously uh, uh, paramount importance for the anesthesiologist, but why should surgeons uh, spend time focusing on the fluid management intraoperatively, the, the prevention of hypothermia, and also actually blood transfusion management when dealing with reductive surgery for ovarian cancer. Yeah, so that's a very good point. So first of all, um, this guidance is made as a team of experts from different, this is a multidisciplinary work, yeah? And this is, of course, not a manual for anesthetists how much fluid to give, of course not. Uh, however, it is very important to us, it was very important to show that the whole management needs to be done in a multidisciplinary way and everybody needs to have input, all the specialists, the gynecology surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the, even the nurse on the ward, how, how these patients need to be optimally managed so that, so that they have the least complications. And it's not a decision of one person. It's not a decision of one anesthesiologist whether he will give a, a, or she will give a blood transfusion. It's a discussion with, between the whole teams. And that is why we touched on the topic. I mean, of course, it is just one chapter. We could, we could make a full guideline just on volume management. Of course, we didn't go as deep. And um, I was talking with the anesthesiologic society. They want to do a specific guidance just for the anesthesiological parts of the of ovarian cancer management. And there is no discussion that we just touched upon it. But uh, it was important that um, we at least address some basic principles um, so that uh, the gynecologists are aware what key points they need to discuss with their anesthesiologists. And that's more important even for people who now set up the service. Yeah? So all of us, yes, we are experienced. We are doing these surgeries with our teams for years. 
but there are increasingly more people who set the service up for radical surgery in the Bayern cancer. So this is just the first step how to address important points with their teams globally. Fantastic. And, and um, to that point, and also you, uh, you talk uh, specifically about strategies for the management of intraoperative bleeding. And, and I, uh, I really like the fact that it wasn't just about the surgical approach, but you also address, you know, hemostatic agents and packing and even for sort of like traumatic bleeding as to what to do. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So bleeding, of course, we couldn't we couldn't leave out um, the chapter bleeding and how to manage uh, hemorrhagic complications. We emphasize that extensive bleeding in this type of surgery is actually very low. Why? Because if these operations are being done by expert teams and by following the vascular planes of the of the body, then um, you don't have excessive bleeding, as one would think. Still, there will be the occasions where there will, uh, or in relapse disease or in palliative situation, where you will have. Um, bleeding problems, and that is why we wanted to address it. So, uh, as in every chapter, we try to see it in a holistic way. We try to see it from every perspective. So, not just what artery to ligate, but how to see the patient as a whole. And um, we have a very big, um, and actually, we were a bit criticized about that from the reviewers. We have a very big uh, emphasis on the um, on the pharmacological aspects of uh, bleeding and also thrombosis. And uh, so if you see in the main uh, supplementary material, there are pages and pages of uh, thrombotic, anti-thrombotic agents, uh, how to do um, replacement of, uh, of, of plasma factors. Uh, so we go relatively deep into that. Uh, we had a very big, ex a very nice colleague and, and friend from um, from Germany, who with whom I've been collaborating on this uh, topic about thrombosis and, uh, and and hemophilia and bleeding since many many years, and that's actually one of my very personal interests. So I was a bit biased, and <laughs> these chapters have been a bit more paid attention to than than um, yeah than perhaps others uh, would expect to. That's why many of the reviewers said, "Hey, why are you talking so long about thrombosis or, mm -hmm. or bleeding?" But uh, yeah. Um, I was. Uh, I think it was important because these are these as Ghanaian colleagues, we, we know so little about these things. Yeah, all of us know how to ligate a vein or an artery, but when you talk about the pharmacological treatments of this uh, of these situations, none of us really know much, and that is why we. It was important to me and to us that we emphasize things um, where we have lack of knowledge, where there are gaps. Yeah. And, and I would definitely emphasize that, uh, particularly for, for the trainees who may be taking uh, standardized testing, uh, this is a, a great read on the details and, uh, and the in-depth mechanisms of, uh, of bleeding. So I definitely would encourage them to, to read <coughs> that section uh, particularly. Um, now, you also talk about prevention and management of upper abdominal complications. And obviously, um, as gynecologic oncologists now, we are performing a lot more upper abdominal surgery to achieve an R0 side of reduction. Um, you focus on upper abdominal surgery in the setting of liver resection, diaphragmatic resection, even pericardiac lymph node resection and distal pancreatectomy. Um, and I think this is a great read on, on how to address those complications. And of course, obviously, we don't have time to go through the extensive details of those. But I was wondering if you could speak about some of the highlights related to, the, um, to this section on upper abdominal surgery. 
Yeah, so that's that's a very good point. I mean, these all these things they were a few years ago, like last decade, they were a bit exotic. I mean, who talked last in the last decade about pericardial lymph nodes? To um, and all these are now part of the daily armamentarium of, of the gynecology surgeon. These things, these procedures are not exotic anymore. All of us do them. All of us want to implement them. <coughs> And therefore, it is very, very important to the team and to all the working groups that we address the complications that you can potentially have. So, um, the, um, we emphasize in the most common um, issues and challenges that we face, like, for example, biliary leaks, uh, pancreatic, pseudopancreatic, uh, pancreatic, pancreatic cysts. We now have seen a very big, um, a very big advances in the endoscopic management of those uh, problems. So that is why we also have an interventional radiologist in the group who uh, gave us all the new advances of uh, how to treat those complications without needing to reoperate the patient again. And, and perhaps not everybody knew about all these advances, so we tried to put them all together in, in one chapter. And in terms of the pericardiac lymph nodes, yes, there, it's actually this procedure is actually much easier than we perhaps uh, think still. There can be some brutal complications, so it was important to address them and to show how can we deal with them or, or what to expect. Um, so I hope we have done it in a way that it is helpful for our readers. Yeah. And then now, Christina, you have a, an important section and one that for many of us who are doing cytoreductive surgery, Obviously, this is uh, of peak interest. The issues related to bowel morbidity, um, you know, when we're doing bowel resections. So I'm actually going to um, have a, a, a little bit of a series of questions on that topic alone, picking your brain, not yes. only about the guidelines, yes, but also your, your own practice. And first, I wanted to ask you, uh, what are your thoughts on the use of bowel prep today in the setting of cytoreductive surgery? Obviously, particularly taking into consideration what the ERAS Society is telling us about no further use of, of bowel prep. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts on, on that first point. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we are, these guidelines are very much in line with the ERAS Society guidelines. And uh, of course, we have also said as a main recommendation that the bowel prep, a routine bowel prep like for a colonoscopy, of course, it is not recommended. Yeah, there is no discussion about this. Mm -hmm. Um Still, we have uh, reviewed the evidence very nicely in the supplementary material, so in the main body of the manuscript. Uh, the issue with this bowel prep is that all the all most prospective randomized trials are for the colorectal patient. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this was also something that the reviewers very much addressed. I mean, the main, the main. Um, guidelines, the main evidence that we have in this regard is about, is, is from evidence that we derive from colorectal surgery. So what is the main, main difference between colorectal surgeries and bowel surgeries? The colorectal surgeries are, even though they are bowel surgeries, they are, in terms of an extent, smaller than our surgeries. You know, you have a rectal cancer, you remove rect, you remove locally the rectal cancer, no matter how advanced it would be, it's just a, a resection in one area of the body. And it's not associated and accompanied with stripping of the upper abdomen, tumor hour anastomosis, tumor more anastomosis in the upper abdomen, splenectomy. So the trauma that we cause in a patient is much higher than in a in a simple, if I might say, colorectal in, in not in a simple in a in a in in, in a in a routine colorectal surgery. 
So um, we actually had many discussions with the experts in, in that regard. And, uh, and if you want to ask my personal opinion, if I will do bulk prep in my patients with an enema, I will give them an enema and I will give a bit of prep alcohol. I won't give a, a bulk preparation like I would do for a colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. But I don't want the patient who will have just had four or five hours of surgery, half of the peritoneum stripped, the chest open, the spleen removed, the stomach strip to also have a, an abdomen, a, a, a large bowel full of stool. <laughs> and, you know, they have to go and empty this full of stool bowel mm-hmm. on top of the three anastomoses that we will have done. Yeah. Um, so it, I think we need to do at some point a prospective randomized study to address this issue of bowel prep in ovarian cancer surgery. Uh, for now, we have to say that, of course, a, a routine Big bowel prep, it's not, it's definitely not, not expected and should be done. But whether you give an enema before you operate or not, or, you know, these are things that we perhaps should see in a prospective randomized design, especially for our patients and not just take the evidence from the color expectation. Yeah. And then another question I had was with regards to strategies uh, used intraoperatively to prevent or, yeah. or minimize anastomotic leaks. And I'm particularly interested in, in your thoughts pertaining to hand-sewn anastomoses versus stapling devices. Yeah, yeah. So that is um, a very, very good point. So there are some older studies that actually, if you compare prospect- in colorectal surgery, hand-sewn anastomosis with, with, uh, with um, stapler devices, there were actually no differences. Increasingly more, and we have just done a study that we published a, few, a couple of years ago with um, Lago and Minic from, from Spain. It was a multi-center study. We actually saw that the state that hands-on anastomosis have a higher risk of leak in, in ovarian cancer surgery than the stapling devices. Yeah. I think the issue is that least and least people now are being trained to actually do hands-on anastomosis. Mm-hmm. I mean, who do you see to do hands-on anastomosis now? Almost none. So if you hardly have the training, if you hardly have the exposure, of course then if once in a while you do a hands-on anastomosis, you have a higher risk of of leak just because you're not doing it as often as, as, as a stapler anastomosis, like perhaps you would do in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I started uh, the ovarian cancer dividing 20 years ago in the Charité in Berlin, and I remember Professor Weidemann, who was my mentor for these colorectal surgeries, he was coming and he was assisting me, all these colorectal surgeries would always suture the bowel. I would never do a small bowel anastomosis with a stapler, never. Mm-hmm. And now we just, you know, just do a GI. It takes two minutes to do it. <laughs> and uh, it's just a different era, yeah. Yeah. And then um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, as, a follow, as a follow-up to that, then uh, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on protective ileostomies when doing a large bowel resection. Yeah. Uh, what do these guidelines exactly. consider yeah. should be appropriate yeah. for, for that? Yeah. Yeah, so I so the, the what we have said in these guidelines is that a routine placement of a protective stoma is not recommended. Yeah, mm. and we have actually reviewed the evidence and we have actually addressed the evidence and, and put it down on a piece on this piece of paper so that everybody everybody can read it. And there is no prospective randomized trial of protective stoma, yes or no, especially for ovarian cancer patients. However. If you look at the colorectal studies, there were many. There are many prospective multicenter studies, meta-analysis for uh, colorectal patients, and what this shows is that um, the, the a protective stoma doesn't necessarily reduce the leak rate; it reduces the mobility from a leak. Yeah, 
the reoperations, the mortality, the septic surges, but not necessarily the leak. Of course, there are some studies that show that there is a lower leak rate in, in the protective stoma. But what you see in most of those uh, colorectal studies is that the leak rates that are being quoted are something around 14, 15%, mm-hmm. 10%. So they're much higher than the, the leaks that we have in gynae oncology, which are around 6, 8%, 6%. So we have published uh, a large milk center trial um, a couple of years ago, as I said, with, uh, with the Spanish colleagues and many European centers. And we have seen that we have a 6%, 6% leak rate mm-hmm. in a non-restrictive um, in, a, in, a, in, in a restricted policy in terms of uh, stoma placement. Mm-hmm. So 6% without stoma, protective stoma. Mm-hmm. So it's actually much less than the 10 to 14% that sometimes you see in this big colorectal meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. And the issue with us is that, I mean, all of us, we know that no matter how deep a tumor is in ovarian cancer, in the majority of the cases, as soon as you have mobilized the whole pelvic package, you, have, you, you will reach and you will mobilize a rectal stump of at least at least seven, eight centimeters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's not as deep as the anastomosis close that, that the colorectal colleagues do that are very close to the anal, um, to, to the anus, uh, like they would do, for example, for a deep rectal cancer. The second point is that we never irradi- we never operate irradiated patients. Yeah, many mm-hmm. of the colorectal surgeons they operate after radiation. Yeah, so. Of course, when you operate and do an anastomosis after radiation, the risk is higher. So, yes, you will consider a stoma. And then, of course, we operate women. Yeah, The women's pain is, is broader. It's, it's less shallow than the, the man's one. So, the manipulations and the handling is easier. So, all these factors, they are contributing to the relatively low leak rate that we internationally are seeing in, in, in ovarian cancer debulkings. So, to do, in all patients with ovarian cancer, a protective stoma, to avoid the, I don't know, 5 6% leak rate um, that inevitably will happen, it needs to, needs to be very carefully considered. Of course, as you say, patient selection is very important. If you have a patient who is cachectic, hypoalbuminemic, has a bowel obstruction when you operate on her, extensive ascites, you need to strip the whole mesentery, of course this patient will need a stoma, yeah, and you wouldn't risk an anastomosis probably. Yeah. So then, um, yeah. also second, yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. So also the, the problem with uh, that I very often see is the ileostomy. So when I personally, if you ask my personal opinion, if I see that it's tricky to do a primary anastomosis in a patient, mm-hmm. I will do a colostomy. I will do an end colostomy mm-hmm. or a transversostomy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because if you do an ileostomy, then the amount of, of fluid losses that they have, electrolyte disbalances, we shouldn't forget these patients, especially if you operate them up front, they will have lost within within these few hours of an operation, six liters of ascites, two liters of pleural effusion. Then you give them an aleostomy mm-hmm. and they will lose two liters on the world of stools. It's, an, it's enormous fluid losses that they will experience. So the morbidity is very high. And then in the area of targeted agents and maintenance treatments, then you proceed and go up, go on avastin, you go on pop inhibitors. When, you will reverse, when will you reverse the stoma? Mm-hmm. So there are very practical problems that we need to encounter, and we need to really consider before we put through all our patients in a protective stomach. Very well. So then, actually, uh, the next question I was going to ask you was regarding exactly where you were mentioning the, the reversal of the stoma. And I was wondering if um, if you do, what kind of testing do you do to assure that the large bowel anastomosis 
is completely healed before reversing uh, the stoma? Yeah, that's a very good point. So um, you can do a colon contrast enema, a colon contrast enema, so that you see not just that there isn't a leak, but also that there isn't a stenosis. Mm-hmm. So we know uh, from many studies that patients who have a primary anastomosis in the rectum and then have a protective ileostomy, these patients, they have a higher risk of a stenosis in the primary anastomosis further down the line, further down. Mm-hmm. So um, therefore, it is very important that when we do this colon contrast enema, there is a um, provision that we see that there isn't any stenosis because if there is any, then you need to dilate before you, you reverse the stoma. I feel like we could do a whole podcast about the... Uh, I know, about, I know, I know. I love this topic too. <laughs> so, so, but obviously, I, I want to be I respectful know. of your time, so I want to move forward. No, uh, it's a I could talk the whole night. I could talk the whole night about... about <laughs> I, I love my right. So then now, um, you talk about also in these guidelines about um, antibiotic administration. Um Tell us about what the guidelines are telling us, and particularly also I'm interested for our audience, if you can talk about what the approach is when performing a bowel resection as it relates to antibiotic administration. Yeah, yeah, so that is, is very, very, a very crucial point. So I remember, again, when I started 20 years ago, these surgeries, we used to give them prophylactically routine seven days antibiotics, yeah. Mm. So this is not part of the guidelines anymore. It is very important that depending on the half-time lab of the antibioticum, the patient starts preoperatively to have from the anesthesiologist and half an hour before, 10 minutes before, I don't know, an hour before. And there are many studies that show the difference between two hours or less than two hours. And we are explaining everything in detail in our main, main manuscript. So it means the antibiotics need to start before the operation so that the minute you open up and you cause a trauma and you mobilize all this bacteria potentially, uh, the patient is already protected. Yeah, You need to continue it during the operation and then for the first 24 hours. But there is actually little, very little evidence of continuing them in a patient who is otherwise healthy, who doesn't have a resistant bug, who doesn't have who doesn't come with sepsis into the hospital to continue the antibiotics. Mm. Especially now in an era where we are having antibiotic resistance and we're actually reaching a point where in a few years we will really have an issue with that. We need to be very, very careful and cautious about um, over-giving antibiotics and causing resistances. These are patients that will have a long journey ahead of them. They will have perhaps neutropenic sepsis under chemo. They might have, I don't know, port uh, infections. So we can't over-treat them with antibiotics unless necessary. Yeah, excellent points. Um, now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about thromboembolic events. And um, I was wondering if you can tell us what is the standard recommendation according to these guidelines with regards to thromboprophylaxis here at, at Anderson. We give patients antibi- I mean, uh, prophylaxis for 28 days after. Are we doing the right thing? Yes, so that's, um, I have to say, that's my special uh, favorite chapter of the whole guidelines. Um, it's, uh, a thrombosis is something that very few of us uh, actually really know what to do and how to do. And now with all the massive advances that we have experiencing with the NOAC, so with the oral anticoagulants, it's very, very important that we as clinicians know how to implement this new knowledge for our patients. So um, this uh, new knowledge is actually not really new knowledge anymore about the prolonged anticoagulation postoperatively. This is a study that was done many, many years ago, more than 10 years ago. It's the Enoxacan study, where patients were prospectively randomized into having a 
and intraparity and intra uh, uh, during the the hospital stay anticoagulation and then stop versus 28 days. And what they have seen is that um, the rate of thromboembolic events and the complications from thromboembolic events was significantly less in the prolonged anticoagulation group. And I personally have within the AGO group, we have done a large large, uh, analysis of uh, uh, three large AGO first-line studies and we have seen in regards to thromboembolic events, specifically for thromboembolic events, and we published it in GCO, and we have seen that the main mortality for those patients when was when they had a perioperative PE, so pulmonary embolism, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, therefore it is it is crucial that by prolonged through prolonged anticoagulation through um, mechanical uh, throm- uh, mechanical stockings and and all this uh, extra. Things, mobilization, physiotherapy, we actually proactively um, work against the development of thrombus in those patients. And, and um, one thing I also wanted to ask you, uh, because from time to time we see patients uh, that uh, may need a, an inferior venal cable filter. Uh, what are some of the indications and contraindications for these filters? Yeah, so the, in the past, we used to uh, give uh, IVC filters, yeah, this Pirobenacaba filters to almost uh, everybody who just had a thrombosis. Now, the guidelines of the ACCP guidelines, so the American uh, um, College of Test Physicians and all the thrombosis guidelines are very, very clear. A routine placement of an IVC filter is not recommended anymore, not mm. recommended, uh, because the harms that we are seeing are probably overweighing the benefits. Um, the, the the position is very clear that if you have a fresh thromboembolic event, you should anticoagulate so that the patient goes away from the first four six weeks of of uh, initial high risk of, uh, of of new thrombosis if you stop the full anticoagulation and that you operate and later. Therefore, a fresh thromboembolic event is one of the main indications, for example, for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and not to operate upfront. But to force things uh, and, and give them a, an IVC filter just to be able to operate, this should not be done. If, of course, you have a patient with a, I don't know, a, something that cannot wait, cannot be treated chemotherapeutically and needs to be operated within these 40 days, six weeks after the initial thromboembolic event, then yes, mm-hmm. you would have to consider an IVC filter. But otherwise, the routine placement of an IVC filter is not anymore given. It's not anymore recommended. Perfect. Very well. Uh, now, uh, another topic that, as you mentioned earlier, we rarely talk about, and a lot of times we think as surgeons that everybody's doing it the same way, wound closure. Yeah. So um, tell us about Please. what yeah. do you think should be the ideal closing technique. And I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, type of sutures, uh, small versus large bites, uh, and any strategies that you can recommend for obese patients. Yeah, no, that's a very, very good point. So um, there is a study, the STITCH trial, that compares large bites compared to small um, and frequent bites. So practically in the second scenario, you use much more material. Um, and it has shown that the, um, in, the, in the arm of the small bites, you have actually a much lower risk of hernias, of wound adhesions, etc. So the recommendation is to, and also it was compared that, so the official recommendation is that you do small bites, you, you use one 
one suture. You don't need to do interrupted sutures. A continuous suture with small bites. Mm -hmm. You may need you may need to to use because it's a big laparotomies and you do small bites. You may need to use two loops. Yeah, just because you don't reach with one, mm -hmm. depending also how big the patient is. Um, but uh, the guidelines are very clear in terms of evidence: small bites and and continuous suturing. Yeah. Uh, so, in terms of in terms of, of uh, in, in in bigger in larger patients, so in more obese patients, whether you put a a redivac drain or not, there are actually it's not enough evidence. There is a lot of conflicting evidence. What we have said is that if you need, for example, to do a lot of mobilization of the sheath and you have created a large bed space, for example, after resection of an abdominal wall metastasis, so in order to close the abdomen, you have mobilized. Uh, Till the um, the spinalia canteris superior bilaterally, so you have a big bed space. Mm -hmm. Of course, there you need to put a ready bag because the probability of creation of seromas is extremely high, mm -hmm. and that you then have in, 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 seromas in this in this dead space that creates uh, problems. And we have uh, we have dedicated uh, almost a couple of pages on the very rare complication of uh, necrotic fasciitis. It's something that. I mean, I really do not remember when was the last time that I saw one, but still, when it happens, it's, it's brutal, it's fatal. So it was important that we give some evidence on this. Uh, there are some prospective randomized studies, smaller, but still very important and very, very nice, actually, very, very easy to do, where they irrigate the, uh, you know, before we close, we like to irrigate uh, the, the wound with saline or with clohexidine, and it has been shown that if you do it with clohexidine, for example, it has lower wound complications, then we have quoted the, the very nice work uh, of, of uh, Sean Dowdy and, mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, Bakum Gomez about uh, this, this surgical bundle, you know, where you change your gloves. Of course, you won't use the same gloves and instruments where you have manipulated the bowel mm -hmm. and, and uh, done an anastomosis to, to close the subcutis and, and close the sheath just because you will have contamination. So these are all simple tricks that yet make a huge difference, and we summarize them. Um, so I think, it's, yeah, it, it was a very important uh, chapter. Perfect. And, and um, one of the other things also you talk about is the issue of nutrition. Um, I don't know if full surgeons are actually doing very appropriate nutritional screening prior to cytoreductive surgery. So can you tell us uh, a little bit about the tools exactly, and the strategies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that is, I think, one of the most crucial points of the guidelines, yeah. Uh, in the past, I mean, I'm sure you remember, where we used to have these ovarian cancer patients that we used to have them starving on the ward for two days before we would operate on them. And now we have the complete new concept of prehabilitation, nutritional optimization, just because we have learned and we have seen that the fitter a patient is, the more nutritionally optimized this patient is, the, the less risk of complications she will have. That is a fact, and that is something that we cannot ignore. Our patients, because of the extensive ascites, fusion, especially if you do a primary debulking, many of them, they will have a hypoalbuminemia, and we very much know that hypoalbuminemia is associated significantly with a higher risk of complications, including anastomotic leaks. So it's very important that these patients, as I say to them, we increase their storage of protein before we operate, in order to be able to, to counteract against all these this losses that we have during the operation. So um, it is very important that we present those patients, if possible, to dietitians, even us, as, I, I mean, even us as gynecologists. When I see a patient 
with ascites in my clinic. I see her today and I will operate her in a couple of weeks and put her in my calendar for in a couple of weeks. The first thing I do is I just give her a a, a, a prescription for anxious. I mean, we have anxious in, in, in the UK or Fresnobin in Germany. So these protein drinks mm-hmm. so that they can they can use this 10 days, two weeks time where they will wait for the surgery to optimize nutritionally their status and build up their protein resources. So simply, simply things like that. And of course, postoperatively, these patients, they don't starve anymore till they move their bowels. That's mm-hmm. completely old-fashioned. These patients should start eating immediately. Mm-hmm. They should start having uh, nutritional support immediately. If we see that somebody is in a palliative situation, has had multiple bowel resections or a stomach resection, uh, that we put on TPN if necessary. So we address all these things. We can't let the patient starve. There is a very nice concept in the prehabilitation of about, you know, when you run a marathon, you would never run a marathon starved. Never. <laughs> and these surgeries are like a marathon. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, one, one other point that I thought was very interesting, uh, because it often comes up in discussion, obviously a lot of our patients now um, are on elements like bevacizumab or on PARP inhibitors, and, and you dedicate yeah. a section of these guidelines as to when is the right timing for surgery. And, you know, frankly, to be honest, a lot of times we're like turning to our pharmacists and asking, say, well, she was on it for this meant this long and stopped it this many weeks ago. Can I do surgery on her? So what, what are, yeah, what are your thoughts? It's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that is actually a point that had, because we send these guidelines to international reviewers. Yeah, we sent it something like 400 reviewers. So this was one of the chapters that had the most criticism because when we started this chapter, we have put in um, uh, agents in like pembrolizumab and, um, and MEC inhibitors. So, you know, everything possible that perhaps we would give in ovarian cancer. And then all the reviews, they came back and they said, but membralizumab is not uh, yet approved in ovarian cancer. How can you talk about operating after that? But MEC inhibitors are not yet approved. So we had to take them out just because mm-hmm. the reviewers found it too detailed this chapter. So it was very, very interesting. Um, so it is a huge, it is a huge point, especially now in times where we do a lot of relapse surgery and neurology and interval debugging surgery. Most of our patients will be on something before we operate on them. So of course we address points like Avastin, everybody knows that they need to wait uh, for six weeks after Avastin, but nobody really knows how much we need to wait after a PARP. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do PARPs do wound healing problems? So we try to search the evidence around that and um, to make a summary of recommendations. Same with anti-hormonal agents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, patients who are on tamoxifen for a low-grade disease, they relapse. Do we continue the tamoxifen? Do we not? We address issues like thromboembolic toxicity, morbidity, uh, if you operate under um, anti-hormonal agents and, and things like that. So I think it's a very, very important chapter, um, which is a bit shorter than we initially wanted it to be, um, but it addresses the main agents. I have no doubt that in the future we have more agents that we get approved mm-hmm. that we also need to add, but yeah, there will be an update of these guidelines in a few years. Great. And another uh, point that I wanted to ask you, and I, and I don't recall that I saw details on it, uh, is regarding HIPEC. Uh, obviously, this is not standard. Yeah. But, uh, You're talking to of... me about HIPEC now. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. So, um, so, of course, in these guidelines, we, could only, we couldn't address everything. We addressed the, more, the most important things. And because HIPEC, like pembrolizumab, <laughs> it's not yet approved in the main guidelines of ovarian cancer. Uh, we didn't we didn't put it in. 
I think it would be a, I think it would be a guideline on its own how to do the periopeptic mm-hmm. care of high tech, to be honest, yeah. Uh, and because it's not standard, of, it's not standard of care yet, and because there are still many studies running yet whether we should do it or could do it, and what is the benefit of that, we left it out. Great. We left so, it out. I mean, when in the future we have um, we have more evidence, then of course, as part of the update, we will. We put it, but I think it will need separate guidelines on its own. To be honest, Pedro, that's what I think. Very well, <laughs> very well. So then, I wanted to ask you also just a few more points um, before we conclude yeah. on the use of drains. Uh, don't routinely mm. use them. Uh, obviously, enhanced recovery guidelines tell us not to use drains. Is there really yeah, any course, indication yeah. today, mm. after cytokine reduction for ovarian cancer, to leave drains? Yeah, so what we have said is that you shouldn't do a routine placement of drains, for example, to prevent an anastomotic leak. Yeah, that's a complete myth and that's not the case. Um, so to use, to use a drain for false safety, it's just a false safety and we would recommend that. Um, or to, or to prevent or see a bleeding. Yeah, so it should be used for that. However, if you have a patient where you do a primary debulking surgery, and you do removal of extensive lymph nodes because of vital lymphadenopathy. The patient is coming on your theater table already with five, six liters of ascites. Mm-hmm. You know that the losses that this patient will have postoperatively and the drain output will be a couple of liters a day at least. Yeah. So in those patients, yes, individually, you can consider drain, putting a drain, just to get rid of all this extra fluid that the patient will we produce in the first days after the operation. But to, to use routinely a drain just for a bowel anastomosis or for a splenectomy, no, definitely not part of the guidelines. Also, I remember in the past, after a splenectomy, we always used to put a drain in the pancreatic bed, in the splenic bed next mm-hmm. to the pancreas, and, and we used to measure the amylase. I don't know if you used to do that. We used to use the amylase every day. Right, right. So, of course, these are old things, yeah. I mean, these, these, are, these, are, these are old-fashioned things. Um, if now you have an, an intraoperative pancreatic injury, if you're very worried, of course, then you will individualize and you will have to do the drain in this patient, but not routinely. Very not well. routinely. And one of the things that uh, you conclude with the guidelines is something that I found interesting, a term you use, psycho-oncology support. Um, tell us about why that's important. Yeah, so this is something that I actually learned the importance of this. Actually, I have to say in the UK, in the UK, we have a very, very robust system of clinical nurse support where every patient will have a dedicated clinical nurse support that will address holistic treatment, holistic um, uh, psycho-oncological um, um, support for those patients. And we have their email, phone number, and they have clinics they can go. And we have seen, I mean, I have seen, huge differences uh, compared to a system, for example, where this is not the case. And and we can't ignore now anymore that the, the humans, the bowel patients are not just a body where we just take out the spleen. Yeah? They are they're a body and a soul and you can't address the body without addressing the soul, as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And and we know nowadays how important the, the psychological status of a patient is for her recovery. Mm-hmm. So to just address the somatic aspects of a surgery without addressing the the, the, the soul aspects. It's just half it's just half of the work. It's not the whole work. And mm-hmm. um, that is why we uh, we address this. That's why we address this. Very, and, very well. Yeah. 
So then one last question. How should surgeons and providers who care for patients uh, undergoing cytoreductive surgery for advanced ovarian cancer use these guidelines? I think, I think, I mean, it's a nice read. I think all of us should read them, even I will read it again <laughs> when they come out. Um, I think, first of all, anybody who is now a young gynecology trainee, it would be a very, very good manual for them as an introduction to what is important for this type of surgeries. Anybody who is now setting up a practice uh, of these guidelines or wants to introduce in his or her team um, these surgeries is, is a very good manual to disseminate and to, um, and to based on those guidelines to make SOPs for the local hospital and for the local center. Um, we can use it. I mean, it's very easy. Um, if we have a, a if we have a question, I don't know. You have a patient who just had a mitral valve replacement and um, is on full anticoagulation, and you have this specific question, you can just look for it into the guidelines. You just look for it specifically to answer that question. So you can use these guidelines either as a read to just get the whole idea, or specifically for a question that you have, you can always run to them and say, mm, "I have this question. How can I do it?" Perfect. That was that was our vision. That was our vision, like a manual, a day manual that we can have uh, for the daily life, and that is why we will convert it into apps because everybody now is running around with an iPhone <laughs> and not with a book. <laughs> so um, we want to convert them all electronically. So you know, while you're in theater, you can just look it up quickly, and you can answer the questions that you need. So very well. Christina, thank you so, so much. Always such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, again, uh, congratulations on putting this together, on completing it. Thank you for this contribution to gynecologic oncology, uh, along with many, many others that you have uh, already contributed. So uh, thank you once again for agreeing to doing this podcast. The pleasure was all mine. It was a pleasure and a privilege always to share this knowledge with uh, all of you, to interact with you, and it, it's always it's always a great great honor. Thank you very much for for giving me this opportunity. <laughs>